Let me read for you out of uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. And this is Jesus talking to a group of his friends. And he says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples and his friends saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you right now, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. We didn't take communion a few weeks ago because it was a holiday, but that's just not right. So we're making up for it today. And we have gluten-free options and we have juice. All the bread now is gluten-free, just so you can know. But I want you to come up while the musicians play, and my wife and I will serve you um, the wine or the juice and the, and the bread. And take it back to your seat and remember Jesus. That's what communion is all about, remembering. Remember who he is. Remember what he did for us. Remember how much he loves you. Remember, like the song said today, that he runs after you with his love. Because when we remember him, we are remembered, reconnected to him. So while the musicians play, just come up whenever you're ready and we'll serve you and take it back to your seats. Thank you.
Chelsea and Dan. If you haven't had a chance to take the bread, do that now in Jesus' name and drink the cup. The body of Christ for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. It's not every day that I receive an invitation to share a little bit from the book of Lamentations, and for good reason. For one thing, it's just so sad. If you're kind of Bible reader who likes to highlight the feel-good verses, you know, the promises and all the clear things God says, here's a spoiler alert. There aren't any in chapter 2, or in most of the rest of the book for that matter, except for a famous passage in chapter 3. But that's actually a good thing because Lamentations teaches us how to respond to the dark times in our lives in an honest and helpful way. Another reason we don't teach out of the book of Lamentations very often is that it happens to express a worldview that's very different from the one that we learn from Jesus. And that's kind of what I want to focus on today. I'd like to share some of the steps in my own personal journey of learning how to read the Bible, particularly parts of the Bible like Lamentations, when it appears to say some kind of screwball things. So, I'm titling uh, my thoughts today, Beyond Easy Answers, A Lamenter's Guide to the Bible. And I've just chosen four phrases that have been helpful for me in my own personal journey of falling more and more in love with Scripture and learning how to read it in a way that, like Tim said two weeks ago about Lamentations, has depth and has honesty and brings healing. Number one, I've come to believe that Scripture is perfectly imperfect. The Bible was written by imperfect people. Richard Rohr in his book, Things Hidden, says the Bible writers are just like the rest of us. They often seem to take three steps forward and two steps back. For example, Abraham Abraham receives the tremendous promises from God and then tries to fulfill them in a way that God never intends. And no one ever comes out and says in the Bible, Abraham, that was wrong. It's just the way it happened. Joseph saves all of Egypt from starvation, from a terrible plague. Wonderful. And then turns around and turns the whole population into a group of slaves. And again, the Bible didn't say anything about it. 
The miracle of revelation is not that God gave us an easy-to-understand, perfectly clean guide to knowing God. Rather, the miracle of revelation is that the infinite and perfect wisdom of God is revealed to us in and through our own very imperfect and finite lives. That's the miracle. It's not that God dropped this book out of heaven and poof, there it is. But that rather, God reveals wisdom in and through the messy details of our ordinary lives. So, when we say the Bible takes two steps backwards sometime, that doesn't mean that we can just redact or ignore the unseemly parts of the Bible. Or, as I've seen a lot of people try to do, explain them away. Oh, that's not what the Bible really says. Here's what the Bible really meant. Rather, God's message is revealed to us in people's experiences, good and bad. Richard Foster, in his book, Life with God, says that the primary message of the gospel can be summed up in two short sentences. So if anybody ever says to you, the, what is the Bible about anyway? Here it is in two super short sentences. God says, I am with you. Will you be with me? Now, Richard Foster is a scholar, a wonderful devotional person, someone that I trust 100%, and I cannot imagine a more accurate and clear and helpful summary of the Bible. God saying, I am with you. Will you be with me? So when the scripture writers struggle with pain and loss, the important thing is not to try to pull some nugget of truth from each and every verse in the Bible. It's like, oh, this verse is in the Bible. It's supposed to mean something special to me. Like, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, an Omar is a tenth of an ephah. Praise God. You know, it, all it means is this is what an Omar is and this is what a tenth of an ephah is. Okay, good enough. So what we need to do instead is to see when Bible writers say things that sort of make us, whoa, what is that? We need to see the way that they brought the nitty-gritty of their lives, the real, the imperfect, the unadorned parts of their lives, their pain, how they brought all that to God, how they responded to God and said, yes, God, I will be with you, but here's where it's at. They learn to be with God in their confusion and suffering, and we can too. Their imperfect lives remind us that even though we are imperfect, we are a part of the story too. Number two, that was then and this is now. I first heard this phrase applied to the Bible by Scott McKnight in his book, The Blue Parakeet. The Bible is not monolithic. You know, you can't take a word from say, the Apostle Paul's epistles, and that same word from the Gospels, and maybe that same word from the English translations of the prophets, or of the poetry, or of the history, and just assume that that word is used the same way every time. It's not necessarily that, that way. Um, <clears throat> the Bible was written over wildly different historical contexts, different languages, different people, different places, different times. 
And the way that people thought in the Old Testament is clearly affected by their surroundings. For example, sometimes in the Old Testament, have you ever noticed, and let's just be honest about it, it's okay to say it, sometimes in the Old Testament, God doesn't seem very nice. Which is very, very different from the way Jesus consistently talks about the loving Father in the New Testament. So what's up with that? What happened? Did God change over time? Or as people used to like to say, did God get saved in the New Testament? No, rather, much of the Old Testament is set in a time and a setting where the nations surrounding Israel uh, generally believed that the gods, plural, they believed the gods, were very powerful, but inept, um, uh, fickle, vindictive. They were afraid of the gods. So actually, the Hebrew scriptures are amazing in how far they go in showing us a different kind of God. It's amazing how far the scriptures go in showing us what God is really like. But they can only go so far to revealing the God of steadfast love. And we shouldn't be surprised about that because God was revealing the eternal perfect wisdom of God through imperfect finite minds and they could just only go so far. So humanity's moral consciousness has developed over the millennia, right? Polygamy used to be okay. Slavery used to be okay. All these sorts of things, except for some terrible examples in our current world. It's not okay anymore for empires to just go grab land and destroy people and say, your country is mine. Most of the world now realize that what's happening in Ukraine is awful. It's awful. It's horrible. It used to just be the way that people lived millennia and millennia ago. But gradually, people are going through a time of moral growth and consciousness. God communicated to Bible writers in their imperfect experience, which was all they could understand. And God communicates to us in our also imperfect experience. Thankfully, in our confusion, God asks, imperfect though we may be, will you be with me? Number three, too much is just enough. Hebrew literature tends to be dramatic and overstated, particularly Hebrew poetry. For example, anything worth saying is worth saying again and again and again. Like, <clears throat> if you read in um, Exodus, it talks about um, Moses saying, here's what's supposed to happen to build the temple. And then it goes through and talks about the building of the temple, and it says the same thing again. And then it goes through and says, and this is what happened. This is how they build the temple. Basically, they say three, the same thing three times in a row. That's just the way Hebrew thought goes. It's how they would bring emphasis. It's not by raising their voices. It's by repeating it again and again and again. Here's another example. In the book of Lamentations, which is five chapters long, the first four chapters are not only poems, the fifth chapter is a poem too, but the first four chapters are called acrostic poems, which means each stanza begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. 
So that means at the beginning of setting out to write this book, the writer, who is traditionally considered to be Jeremiah, and you know, people talk about whether or not that's the case, but we'll just say as a sort of a placeholder, Jeremiah, set out to say basically the same thing 22 times in each chapter. And quite frankly, the chapters aren't that different from each other. That's just the way Hebrew poetry often worked. It's a way to emphasize something. And it's an example of how Hebrew writing is often overstated and dramatic. This overstatement also includes larger-than-life descriptions and metaphors. Think of the psalmist. When they talk about people that aren't being very nice to them, they say, wild animals are tearing at my flesh. Literal precision was not always a big concern. And when we admit that, when we realize that, we're free to read Hebrew poetry the same way that we read our English poetry. When we see these beautiful metaphors and word pictures, if we take them too literally, we miss what the writer is saying, right? And that sometimes happens when we try to make the book, the Bible, to be a different kind of book than it really is. Number four, stop trying to fix me. So as we continue narrowing our focus from the whole Bible or the Old Testament to Lamentations in particular, we should remember that the purpose of lament is not to make things better. It's simply to grieve with God. And by using this phrase, I'm sure you recognize, and you've probably had this experience, where you were wanting just to share with someone the pain that you were in, and they began trying to fix you. And what do you, you feel like slapping them, don't you? Normally, I'm sort of the fixer. <laughs> I'm the person that struggles just to listen, to be with, and I'll try to fix things. Here's a couple examples. Lament is not what we call cognitive therapy. And I love cognitive therapy. That's when you identify the lies that you're subconsciously believing and you replace those lies with the truth that can set you free. It's a wonderful thing to do. I do it all the time. When I'm going through a time and I just realize I've been bummed, I'm not very pleasant, I'm not very happy, I'll just take some time, some time to think, what? Where is my head right now? I'll identify some lies. And just by speaking them out loud, I realize how foolish they sound, and I begin to replace those lies with the truth. But you know what? That's not what we're doing here. That's not what lament is. We can get to that eventually. But that's not where we're at right now. Don't rush to find explanations of how to correct wrong thinking. We need to give our feelings time to run their natural course. And when you're with someone who is suffering and saying some crazy things, ask yourself, is this a time to help them see the lies that they're subconsciously believing and to gently lead them into the truth? Or is this just a time to be present, knowing that that other time will come, but for now? Is this just a time to offer a safe place for them to grieve and for you to hear their lament? So lament is not cognitive therapy. It's also not a path to recovery like the 12 steps 
which, by the way, are awesome. But we don't lament to feel better. We lament to be with God in our suffering. If we look too hard for the light at the end of the tunnel, we ignore the darkness that we're experiencing at the moment to our own peril. <laughs> Listen to the last two verses of the book of Lamentations. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew us as in our days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Boom, end of book. <laughs> Jeremiah is like saying, oh God, restore us, but if not, it's, we're done, we're toast. And he just stops there. He's very honest about the experience that he's going through. So if lament is not cognitive therapy or a 12-step process, what is it? Lament is simply being honest about our suffering and giving ourselves time to be with God in it. Lamentations is helpful because it provides an example of how someone can process their grief with God. And you know, we hear that phrase, we need to have time to grieve, we need to process our grief, we need time to feel our feelings, and we don't even know what that means. And that is one of the best things that the book of Lamentations can do for us, because it gives us an honest example of a person doing that. And we read those words, and we think, ooh, how can he even be saying that stuff? Well, this is why. So, let me give you an example. I'm going to apply these four thoughts that I've mentioned to Lamentations 2. Listen to some of the things, first of all, in Lamentations 2, that Jeremiah says about God. Here are the first four verses. How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Zion. He has broken their, her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. I'd like to put up just a kind of a word cloud of some of the words that Jeremiah has used to describe God. And they're not the kind of words that we would normally use to describe God or that we even like to listen to people using in reference to God. It's just not fun to think about God this way. But as I was reading those verses, could you get a sense, even in the language, in the English language, that Jeremiah in his Hebrew was writing this, how can I say it again? How can I say it again? This is what I think God has done. This is what it looks like has happened to me. This is what has happened. He says it again and again and again, and he doesn't sugarcoat it. This is what he says about God. When we suffer, our thoughts and feelings about God can go a little screwball. Let's just be honest and admit it. And let's not make it worse. 
by feeling guilty about our feelings. You know what? God is big enough to handle our feelings. God's not going to be offended. Maybe one of the reasons Lamentations is preserved for us is so that we can see that for now, being honest with God about our experience is more important than being strictly correct and accurate about God's attributes. If we edit ourselves too carefully, if we limit ourselves to saying only the things that are precisely correct about God, we can short-circuit our own process of grief. Jeremiah's primary understanding about God was that God got crazy mad at Jerusalem and destroyed it because of the people's sin. Now, again, that was then and this is now. That's the way people thought back then. It's called the Deuteronomic philosophy of history. You do well, everything good will happen to you. You disobey God and you are toast. That's the way people thought back then. But that was then and this is now. Or as Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. Jesus appeared as the word of God. That's what John says. Paul calls him the image of God. The book of Hebrews calls him the exact representation of God. So we can trust that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of what God is really like. But in times of tragic loss, you may be tempted to blame God, to give up on God. Can we just say that that sometimes happens? You may be tempted to at least cry out, where were you? If you're into the five classic stages of grief, the second one is called bargaining. It's where you try to figure out, you know, what, where were you? Why did this happen? What does this mean? Lamentations shows us that these feelings are normal and that we should not panic when we have them. Instead, pour out your heart to God. It's like the psalmists when they rage. One of the things that the book of Psalms teaches us is that when we have rage in our hearts, what should we do with that rage? Pour it out to God. And Lamentations is teaching us the same thing about our suffering and our sorrow. Here's another panicky thought that we can have about God. Listen to verse 9. Uh, as Tim mentioned, Jeremiah pictures Jerusalem, which has been destroyed by Babylon, as a woman. And Jeremiah says, her gates have sunk into the ground. Her bars he has broken and destroyed. Her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. Her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. That's Old Testament prophet speak for God is silent. God's not talking to me. And again, if that's your experience, here's the best counsel I can give you. Don't panic. It was okay for Jeremiah to feel that way, and it's okay for us to feel that way too. Lament is not generally characterized by flashes of inspiration. Just the opposite. It's dark. But scripture is showing us that this is normal, this is the way it works when we go through these kind of experiences, and the important thing for us is to bring our darkness to God. 
So those are some things that Jeremiah was believing about God. Let's look at some things that Jeremiah was believing about Jerusalem. And remember, when the Old Testament prophets talked about the people, the nation, or here in particular, the city, because that's pretty much what all that was left of Judah by this time. And, you know, just to paint the historical context a little bit clearer, just as Assyria, the previous world power, had slowly eaten up the northern kingdom of Israel and then finally captured the capital, so now Babylon, this world power, had been eating up the southern kingdom of Judah, and pretty much all that was left was Jerusalem. When Jerusalem is gone, the country as they know it is toast. It's gone. This is the last thing. And so when Jeremiah laments about Jerusalem, he's identifying with the people and he's realizing this is our last stand. But he says, what can I say? This this is in chapter 2. What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter of Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? Sounds pretty hopeless. In fact, let's put up another word cloud of words that Jeremiah in chapter 2 uses to describe the people of Jerusalem. Not very exciting, encouraging words, are they? And, and in some ways, they felt very literal to Jeremiah because, again, if Jerusalem falls, the country is gone. When we suffer, we can lose a sense of our own true identity, feeling like I'm just a lost cause. This is always the way it goes for me. I never win anything. Or we may feel that we're completely alone and no one understands. And you know what? In your present circumstances, with your present circle of friends, maybe no one does understand exactly what you're going through. That's one reason why we bring our lament to God. Again, when these feelings arise, don't panic. And don't ever, please, argue with yourself for feeling that way. It's possible for us to have feelings, big, intense feelings, without letting those feelings have us. We can identify our feelings without being identified by them. That's not to say that feelings aren't real, just the opposite. We can be honest about our difficult feelings because we know they don't define us. See what I'm saying? We can say this kind of stuff because this is what I'm feeling. We're not really addressing the issue of right now of is it 100% true? It's just what I'm feeling and that's enough. And so that's what we can go to God with. Even amid his lament, In the back of his mind, Jeremiah has this safe place. He includes descriptions of Jerusalem that I haven't included in another word cloud, but listen to these names that he calls Jerusalem. Amid his lament, this pokes through. He calls Jerusalem, Daughter Zion, the splendor of Israel, the Lord's footstool, Daughter Judah, the Lord's dwelling, his place of meeting, daughter Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth. Those are phrases that Jeremiah uses to describe Jerusalem. Though his sorrow runs so, so deep, somewhere 
deeper still he knows. But this is not who we really are. And can you see how that would give him the courage to be honest about his lament? It's as if his strong sense of Jerusalem's true identity empowered him to express his agony to God and to be with God in his pain. Thanks, Pat. Can we go back to the title slide? So, here's my summary paragraph. This morning, in this nice, bright sanctuary, in the company of people who care for us, worshiping the God who loves us, we build our sense of our true identity. We are loved daughters and sons of God, blessed and chosen and forgiven and accepted and so much more. We are living, breathing images of God. And if the time should come, or rather when the time does come, for us to bring our difficult feelings to God, we can do so with confidence, knowing that we are who we are, not because of what we feel, or not because of what we have faced, but because we are created in the image of God. Thank you, Gene. It is our habit to do a short spiritual practice after every message, so the message just doesn't go in one ear and out the other. So I've asked my buddy Jimmy to come up here and lead us in a short spiritual practice today. And then I'll make a couple of announcements and we'll be off into our week. So Jimmy, take it away. Thank you. Metaphors are the air I breathe the waters I swim in, they aren't perfect, they're just helpful and fun. So take a deep breath with me and dive in for a minute. What I'm wearing doesn't tell me who I am. It does impact the perceptions of who I am, including my own. Somebody take a picture of me. I want to see you later. Okay. Uh, Kathy, can I have two hugs? And can I have your sweater? The one you're wearing. Yes. Now, Kathy has given me lots of hugs over lots of years while I was wearing lots of things. Uh, those hugs I got from Kathy, she, she was not hugging my jackets. She was hugging me. Feelings don't tell us who we are, and they don't tell us where we're going. They tell us where we are. Uh, something that I find really important to think about is um, God is always present, 
and the present inherently can't be imaginary. It can't be pretend. It has to be real. God is only real. God can only be in what is real. God can only be present with what's real. So our feelings, what happens to be in any given moment, while they are not reality itself, they're acknowledgement of what is happening in reality, and therefore that's where God can be, and that's where only God can be. So it's important to recognize and admit, how do I feel so that I can be fully present with God? Just a side note. Um, let's, let's practice something. Take a minute and look at, let's look at our clothes right now and how they are not connected to our body. There's a difference between my, my body and my clothes. I can see this. Uh, and let's also rec- remember, when I woke up this morning, I was wearing something different. It was not very long ago. Some of us last longer than others. Now, let's take one minute and sit and get a sense of how do I happen to feel right now? Just how do I feel? Not, not how do I want to feel? How did I feel? How would I like to feel? Let's just take a second. See, how do I feel right now? Now, what if, what if God is present, just like Kathy was present with me, regardless of whatever feelings I have happening right now? And what if, just like Kathy was unhindered by my jackets, what if God is unhindered by whatever feelings I happen to have any given moment? What are happening, how, feelings I happen to be wearing? They're there, but that's, that's just a fact. Thank you, Jimmy. A couple of quick announcements before we go today. First of all, you'll notice our treasure chest in the back. There's no cover charge for going to this church, but if you want to bring your tithes and offerings, you can give online or you can drop it in that handy little treasure chest. We're going to have QR codes coming in the near future to help people give too. Um, 
Yeah, it's a new year, but same old bills. Sorry, so we do have to keep paying those. Second of all, you'll notice a big bucket or a barrel right by there. We are donating slightly, gently used clothing to the Burrito Brigade this month. Um, they not only hang, hand out burritos all over the town, but they hand out clothing and even sleeping bags to people all through Eugene. So if you would like to donate to that, that barrel will be here for the next several weeks. And then small groups are coming in February. We'll make you aware of that. And please, on your way out today, throw away those um, little plastic cups that you took communion with, because those things take me forever to find in here. They like blend into things like a chameleon, so that would be really appreciated by me. And lastly, because we're going through the Book of Lamentations, um, we're ending with a song of lament. And so as you're going out, you're going to hear a song of lament playing. And I'm making my way up from the past. We started in the 50s and we're in the 90s now. So you'll just, um, you'll enjoy this song of lament. It's Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2. And it's a great song of lament. But for the rest of you um, that you just want to get out really fast and not even stop and listen to that, thanks for coming today and we'll see you here next week. And um, I can't wait to preach next week on Lamentations chapter 4 because hope makes a special appearance. So, all right, have a great week. Love you.